when I was in college, there was a couple of brothers. Ben and Brad were their names. Angie may remember uh, these brothers. And if there were two young men who personified the Dukes of Hazard, it was these two guys. They were from uh, uh, eastern North Carolina. These were the kind of guys that would, at night, get out in their john boat and go into the swamps and catch alligators and, and wrestle them. Okay? The, they, didn't, they weren't just those kinds of guys. They did that sort of thing. That was fun. So frog gigging led to alligator wrestling, and I remember them talking about how they had an alligator in the boat when the game warden came, and they weren't supposed to have an alligator in their boat and that sort of thing. So these, are, these, were, these were thick dudes. Their, their skulls were thick. Their bodies were thick. They were just tough guys. Um, they, were, they were kind of, you know, brawlers. They, they fought, um, and you didn't want to mess with one, because if you messed with one, you were messing with both. And, and either one of them individually could very much fend for themselves, um, but the two of them together, you know, you, just, you, you, you would want six or eight people with you if Ben and Brad uh, came against you. Oddly enough, they came to Bob Jones, and one of them is in the ministry. So go figure. God, God uh, does crazy things with all of us. Ben and Brad um, were the kinds of guys where if you said something about their mom or you said something about their car, if you said something about their other brother, they were both going to come at you in a very unified front, and you, you didn't want to be on the receiving end of that. But do you know who Ben and Brad fought with most? They fought with each other most. That's who they fought with the most, was with each other. In fact, you know, you, the, the fights you would have to break up would be fights with Ben against Brad and Brad against Ben. And unfortunately, they were both about the same size and about the same strength, and they, you know, they could put a hurting on each other. So if, if there was a unified cause for them to fight against, they were unified in their fight. But most of the time, the fighting that they did was like, unfortunately, many brothers do, one against another. And while it's kind of a, a story that brings a, a, a grin to our mouths when we hear a story like this, unfortunately, this kind of fighting describes what happens in a lot of churches. There's, there seems to be a unified front, right? When there's doctrinal error in the community that needs to be addressed, the church is, when, there's a, when there's a physical need in the community that the church needs to address, the church is unified. When there... And, and when there's something outside of the walls of the church that needs to be addressed, often there's a very unified front going forward, but the folks in the church fight most often with the folks in the church. And this is true in many, many churches. It was true in the church at Corinth. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and, and after he kind of gets through his greeting and then his giving thanks to God for the grace in their lives, he begins to confront the church at Corinth, and he has an appeal that he makes of them, and he has some correction that he gives to them. And so this morning, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Many of your Bibles even have the heading, Divisions in the Church. We're going to look at these divisions, and we're also going to look at God's remedy for division in the church. And I'll just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag right now. The answer to division in the church is unity in the cross of Christ. That's not my idea or any other Christian author's idea. It's straight from the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things. First, we'll look at Paul's appeal for unity. Secondly, we'll look at the nature of the Corinthian disunity. And third, we'll look at Paul's reason for unity. First of all, Paul's appeal for unity. Let's do this. Let's read the entire passage together, and then we'll, we'll dive back in 
uh, to point number one. The whole passage, verses 10 through 17. Paul again, writing to the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I will follow Paul, or I will follow Apollos, or I will follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. First of all, Paul's appeal for unity. Verse 10, the words, I appeal, are right there, first two words. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united and in the same mind. Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth. He's appealing to them passionately and, and with, with, some, uh, with, with a punch behind his words. And he's appealing to them, and this is incredibly important, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is a title. You know this. The word Lord means master. So he's appealing to the church at Corinth by the name of their Lord. And the name of their Lord is Jesus Christ. He is appealing to them based on a name. It's a strange thing to do, isn't it? Does anyone come to you and say, let me appeal to you by the name of, and then they name someone, here's how you need to run your business, or here's how you need to manage your family. Or here's... It's a strange thing that we see Paul doing here, to appeal to, appeal to them on the basis of a name, but we'll see why that, we, we will see why that is massively significant here. There are lots of names used in this section of Scripture, right? We've got Christ, Chloe, Apollo, Cephas, Paul, Gaius, Crispus, Stephanus, lots of names used. I think it's interesting that, that there are lots of names used in this passage, and all of them appear to be good, strong, solid Christian people. And Paul's making his appeal through the name of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's appealing that they, would, that they would agree, that they would have no divisions, that they would be united in mind and judgment. And that phrase, that they would agree, means that they would say the same thing. And of course, this is referring to doctrinal issues, what the Word of God says, that they would say the same thing that the word says, that there would be no divisions among you. That word divisions should have for us the idea of no tears, no cracks. Everything, instead of a torn garment, there's, there's a solid garment woven together. There's no tears or cracks among you, brothers and sisters. And that you be united in mind and in judgment. These phrases are calling for unity on a clear gospel testimony and a gospel witness. Paul is calling to them. And I've, I've even, in my Bible, got them underlined. Five of these phrases. All of you agree. There be no divisions. United in the same mind. Same judgment. Sorry, there's four. Those four phrases there where Paul is appealing to them to be united. 
And if we didn't have if we didn't have the next section of verses, we might think that Paul was simply appealing to them to kind of maintain healthy unity with each other, right? I appeal to you to kind of stay unified just like you're already unified. But the next couple of verses make it clear to us that they, they weren't unified and Paul wasn't just giving them some good advice, but he was actually confronting them. And we, we know what this feels like, right? We know what it's like when someone comes to you and they say, look, you, you need to be humble. And they aren't saying you need to be humble just like you're already humble, so keep being humble. What they're saying is you're proud. And in light of your pride, I'm telling you, you, you need to be humble. Well, Paul is saying you need to be unified. And then he goes on. Number two, the nature of the Corinthian disunity. Verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, it's interesting here that we have a reference to a lady named Chloe, and we really know nothing about her. This is what we know about Chloe, what is mentioned here. Other than it being a cool name, we know very little. There's some things that we can conjecture. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church from Ephesus. She may have been someone who lived in Corinth and who had family or or business partnership, maybe, in Ephesus. And so there are folks going from her home in Corinth to Ephesus where Paul is. Or it may have been vice versa, where she lived in Ephesus and she had family or friends in in, uh, Corinth and they were bringing word back to Paul. We, we really don't know. We don't know whether she's a Christian or not. She, she may have been, and maybe her close association with Paul would tell us uh, that that's the case, but we're really told very little about Chloe and about Chloe's people. Interesting designation even, Chloe's people, doesn't it? Chloe's family or Chloe's slaves or Chloe's, it just says Chloe's people. But Chloe's people have done something that got Paul's attention. Chloe's people brought word to Paul that the Corinthian church was disunified. Now, if Chloe's people were Christians, maybe they went to Paul with with a concern. Paul, the church at Corinth, they're disunified. There's quarreling, there's there's party spirit there. Um, And they went not not with a tattletailing kind kind of report, but with a Paul you know, you're an apostle, you know, please, please help. And just a quick side note, there is a difference between tattletelling. Tattletelling is, is, you know, telling on someone in order to get them in trouble. Whereas, you know, helpful reporting is where you're getting someone out of trouble. You're going to someone who can help in order to help remedy the problem. And you can teach your kids that like I need to teach my kids that. Speaking the truth in love is not the same thing as tattletelling. Anyway, so... Were Chloe's people Christians, they were going to Paul and saying, look, there's something wrong with the church. But, but imagine with me for a second, and this speculation actually will be helpful for us, and I'll make it clear here why in a second. But imagine with me that Chloe's people weren't Christian people. And here they are bringing word back to Paul. And what kind of word would they be bringing to Paul? Paul, your message of this unity in Christ and, and making much of Christ and, and you're all in him and there's unity because of Christ and the gospel uh, not at Corinth. I don't know what's wrong with your message, Paul, but there's a problem at Corinth. And so if Chloe's people weren't Christian people, now they're bringing a, a message to Paul and saying, 
uh, look, your, your word uh, is no good. It doesn't even work. You know your church in Corinth? Yeah, man, it's a mess. And just like we may have friends who look and they see in the church or the church at large and they say, man, there's so much party spirit and envying and rivalry and quarreling. That word here is used, quarreling. Chloe's people report that there is quarreling amongst the brothers. They're actually engaging with one another in verbal conflict. We do this too. We do. Maybe in this room, maybe out on the patio, maybe in our homes with each other even. We, we don't just disagree. We actually begin to fight with one another. We gossip. We backbite. We slander. We conjecture. And by that I mean we say to someone else, you know, you know what I think their problem is? And right there, right there you're on un- unstable ground. You know what? I, I really think here's why they're struggling. Or I really think they're struggling in this way. And by, by just, you're not saying you know what the person's struggling with. You're not saying you know what's wrong with them. But you say, you know, I think. And, and, and with, in that, you kind of feel like you've dismissed your ability now to just go ahead and, and slander the person that you're talking about. Our words similar to the word of God, can be quick and powerful. Not ultimately like the word of God, but our words are, are powerful. And the Corinthian church was involved in quarreling. We do it on blogs. We do it through uh, Facebook or email. James 4.1 says this, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and have not, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The quarreling that happens amongst Christian brothers and sisters happens because of sin inside of us. Quarreling doesn't happen because we disagree about something. Okay, The world is full of people who disagree. The church is full of people who disagree about something. And we're going to talk about some of those things that people in this church disagree with. We're going to list some of those things here in just a minute. But just because you and I disagree on something doesn't mean that quarreling then happens. Quarreling is not automatic. Quarreling happens as sin enters into the picture. Verses 11 to 12, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean, and here Paul's going to get very specific with them. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or name there also means Peter, or I follow Christ. Now, it may be because these brothers and sisters at Corinth, it may be because they uh, interacted with these different men and they, they were aware of their different ministries and their different perspectives and their different emphasis in ministry. Maybe some followed Paul because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Maybe some followed Apollos because he was a wise and eloquent preacher from Alexandria. Maybe others followed Cephas because of his emphasis on the Jews, and he was one of the uh, original apostolic band. And then there are others you know, who just kind of take, take the trump card, they take the high road, and I follow Christ. This same kind of sectarian party spirit can invade the church today as well, right? Some are of MacArthur or of Piper, or of Sproul, or of Mahaney, or of Doug Wilson, or of Doug Phillips, or fill in the blank, all right? And there's that 
that Christian leader that you look to as the final authority? Well, who do you look to as the final authority on theological issues? Who do you have trouble agreeing with in the church because you have taken a Christian leader as your final authority? And even here, uh, the Corinthian church, some said, I follow Christ. And we do that as well, right? Some say, well, I'm not a I'm not a Calvinist, I'm not a fundamentalist, I'm not an uh, evangelical, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm a biblicist, I'm, I'm just a Christian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim and, and take the high road. And, and there are even whole denominations, right, that get the corner on Christ, right? The Church of Christ or, you know, the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints or whomever. You know, people, people just want to automatically say, I'm going to be, we're going to get rid of the party spirit and we're just going to be the ones who follow Christ. Well, certainly those who followed Apollos would have said, well, we follow Christ. And those who followed Cephas would say, we follow Christ as well. So the point isn't even whose name we name. See, the appeal, uh, the appeal to names here, Paul starts his comments to them, appealing to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I appeal to you in the name of Cephas or in the name of Apollos or even in my own name. I appeal to you in the name of of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the name that, that Paul immediately begins to appeal to as he seeks to, to restore unity in a disunified church. We can, and probably do to some degree, uh, struggle with each other as we follow men, but that might not be our primary problem. It may not be that some of you follow such and such theologian and some of you follow such and such pastor. But there are, there are other areas for disunity that cause this same kind of sectarian spirit. What are other areas for potential disunity? Well, there are theological nuances. And I don't mean core Christian doctrine, but I do mean theological nuances such as soteriology or, or end times and how that's going to play out. And, and we can become not just disagreeing in these areas, but actually quarreling with one another. And when we move from disagreeing to quarreling, that's when we sin. There are areas in this church, like music, where there's, there, is a, there is a broad um, difference of personal preference in our own church. Some want hymns, some want more contemporary. Some want drums and loud ones. Someone want, some want no drums, piano and organ. Some want a choir. Some prefer a worship team. Now, is it wrong for you to have your personal preference? It's not wrong. It is not wrong for you to have your personal preference. I have my personal preference as well. But when we move from disagreement to quarreling, that's what creates disunity, brothers and sisters. Other things we may disagree on, clothing selection for church or whether or not we public school or Christian school or homeschool or, or the classical educational model or the traditional educational model or should there be a youth ministry in a church or should the church be family integrated or what's the right number of children for, for a family to have or you know, should we eat organic food or non-organic food, right? I mean, we, can, we really can kind of get up in arms about our preferences and suddenly, we find that there's division in the church. But don't think that these kind of differences weren't, weren't there 
in Corinth or in Ephesus or in Galatia or in Rome in the early church. I mean, imagine, imagine the difference, the different kinds of people gathered together in the early Ephesian church where you literally have a slave and a slave owner sitting next to each other. You have a Jew and a Samaritan sitting next to each other. Okay? We, even the black-white uh, racial conflict that uh, marks, that stains our early American history, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't compare to the kind of s- slavery and slave ownership uh, that the early Christians would have been familiar with. And yet, here are people who have every reason to be very disunified, and they're unified around something. And it's not musical style, it's not clothing selection, it's not organic or non-organic. Okay, I, I threw that one in there, obviously, just to be silly. Paul has an argument. He has a reason for unity, and I've already been appealing to it in the name of Christ, but let's, let's listen to Paul as he, like many of your teachers would do, he starts asking questions. Didn't you hate it when a teacher would do that? Right? You have a question, and so how does he answer you? He asks you a question. And you think, oh, I didn't want to be put on the spot. I just had a simple question, and I want, you're the teacher. I want you to answer it. And the teacher asks you a question, and what that does, it makes you think. And here Paul asks questions of the Corinthian church, and it, they seem like you know, obvious questions, almost nonsensical because they're so easy, but he wants them to think. Verse 13. Now we're looking, number three, at Paul's reasons for unity. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize, excuse me, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So here, Paul starts to ask a string of questions, and they're rhetorical questions. They have obvious answers. Question number one, is Christ divided? And some, some theologians say that the word divided there has more of the idea of, is Christ portioned out? Not so much as Christ broken in half, but does, does some of you get some of Christ and some of you not get some of Christ? No, you get Paul and you get Cephas and you get Apollos and others get Christ. Is, is Christ able to be divided out like this? Or is Christ himself divided? I mean, is he in some way you know, split, down, split down the middle and so you can, you can be disunified because Christ is disunified? Well, no, the, the answer is obviously no. Christ is one. There is one Christ and he is one and he is impos- it is impossible to divide Christ And so it should be impossible for disunity to exist in the church if unity is around Christ. If unity revolves around anything other than Christ, then it is easy and will will quickly be shown in disunity. Is is Christ divided? No. The, The question seems to us nonsensical. Question number two. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, uh, Paul's asking the question. Um, it's obvious, Paul, no, you're asking the question. Uh, you weren't crucified for us. But the point isn't to, for them to figure out, hmm, I wonder if Paul was crucified for us. The, the point for them to understand is that Christ was crucified for us. Christ was crucified for us 
uh, is the point that, that Paul is making to the Corinthian church here. And this is no small point to make. Christ was crucified for us to bring us into Christian unity. There is no more humbling and unifying thing in the world than for us to consider that Christ was crucified for us. I was talking with the teens about this this morning in Sunday school. Imagine standing at the foot of the cross and seeing Christ hanging there and feeling proud. How would that, how would that even be possible? For us to be proud as we stand at the foot of the cross and see our Savior there. We are, we are brought together in humble unity because Christ was crucified for us. Third question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and then Paul goes on to give us uh, kind of almost a, verse 16 is in parentheses, verses 14 through 16 are kind of a parenthetical thought here. He goes on to list, oh, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Look at the constant reference through the passage to names or the phrase in my name or in Christ's name. The name of Christ is really important here. And what Paul is saying is, I, I, no one should name the person that baptized them as the person into whom they were baptized. Right? It, it's not a big deal who baptized you. It is a big deal into whom you were baptized. And Paul's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you so that you can't name me as your baptizer because I want you to focus on the fact that you were baptized into someone else's name. In fact, for most of us in here, when we were baptized, whoever baptized you literally said these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? You were baptized into a name, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into the name of Christ. Have you been to a place on the other side of the world, foreign country? I've been to several foreign countries. The Lord's privileged me to go uh, to several foreign countries. And I have been introduced to Christian brothers and sisters there, people with whom I can't converse because I don't know their language, whose food just kind of depends on where I've been. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes it's less than desirable. Um, their culture is, is totally foreign to me. Their music is totally foreign to me. Their manners, their dress, all of this is totally foreign to me. And as soon as we in, are introduced to each other, there is immediately a unity there that I cannot explain. A, a genuine love for someone I've never met before. And I've met non-believers in other places like that, and I don't have that with them. But because we're both in Christ, there is a unity made there by Christ. Christ is not divided. Christ was crucified, and in his name we have been baptized. Those are the answers to the questions in, in verse 13 there. When we are, when we're introduced to a, to a Christian, and it doesn't have to be someone on the other side of the planet, it can be someone, you know, 
uh, even local, and you meet, and you find out they're a brother or sister in Christ, and there's a sweet unity that you begin to enjoy immediately. We don't always have to be uh, on the other side of the planet. No one had to told. No one had to tell you. Okay, now you guys unite. You know, have unity. Figure out something to unify around. No, you, you knew. We we are united. We don't have to try to discover something to unite around. We are united. Again, Paul appeals to the name of Christ. Verses 14 through 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul talks about who he did and did not baptize. And and this passage actually even helps us put baptism in its place. Baptism is important, but baptism does not save. And there there is a friend of mine with whom I have had an ongoing conversation regarding whether or not baptism uh, is necessary for salvation. He believes that it is. And I actually am fearful for his soul because I do believe he's added to the Christian gospel by saying that baptism is necessary for salvation. If baptism were necessary for salvation, verse 17 where Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, would not read that way. It wouldn't read, he hasn't sent me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Um, That's a quick aside. And then another quick aside, and I think this is interesting. Um, Even the way Paul is writing here makes it clear to us how how God gave us the Bible. He gave it to us through human authors who wrote with their own style, their own personality, and even to a degree their own flow of thought. Okay, Obviously inspired, obviously writing what God wants them to write, but Paul talks about baptism, and he says, I'm thankful that I didn't, baptize anybody except Crispus and Gaius. And then verse 16, I did, oh yeah, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Okay, and I want to be careful here. Obviously, I'm reading in such a way that's interpreting. Uh, but, but it is interesting that this is not just some mechanical dictation uh, that Paul is mindlessly in a trance just writing words. No, he, he's writing a letter to, the, to, his, to his brothers and sisters at Corinth. Okay, back to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 10 says to be united, and this verse makes crystal clear what Paul is holding up as the unifying point of the Christian gospel. The unifying point of the Christian gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He wants the cross of Christ to be full of power. It's the name of Jesus Christ and his work on this cross that Paul is appealing to for unity in the Corinthian church. Pastor Josh Harris says, unity is maintained where the cross of Christ is held preeminent. Unity is maintained where the cross of Christ is held preeminent. I have not been at this church long, but I've been here long enough to know that it is the desire of the pastors and the desire of the congregation that the gospel of King Jesus be held in first place every Sunday. There is nothing else that we are more ultimately about than holding up the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, um, 
Josh Harris, the, the quotation I gave you, unity is maintained where the cross of Christ is held preeminent. And he uses the illustration of a church of people gathered around, and if it were physically possible, there's, there's a cross, and everyone has their right hand on the cross. The whole church, everybody's got their right hand on the cross. This is our unifying point. And we are, we're, we're all doing different things with our left hand. Some of us are farming, some of us are pastoring, some of us are lawyering, some of us are doctoring, some of us are teaching, right? We're doing different things with our left hand, but the right hand, everyone's touching the cross. This is our center point. It is our point of primary focus. And not just a piece of wood. It's not just that we worship something shaped like that. It's what happened on that. It's who did what on that that we're unifying around, that the God of the universe came in human flesh, lived the perfect life that you and I desperately needed, died for us, and was raised first for us. His life, death, and resurrection. This is the Christian gospel. This is why the cross is so significant, why the cross is so necessary. So, like the psalm songwriter says, lift high the cross. This is our goal, our desire, brothers and sisters, to lift high the cross. Another phrase from another song, I will glory only in the cross. There are a lot of things we could glory in, right? We could glory in our collective educational accomplishment. We could, we could glory in our financial stability. We could glory in our, exposition, our commitment to expositional preaching. All of these things are good things, but we're to glory in the cross and Paul says something interesting here, not with eloquence and wise speech making. He says, um, not with eloquent words, excuse me, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Okay, what Paul, what Paul is saying here is that I don't want any credit to be given to my fancy speech making, my ability to argue, my fancy presentation. I want the Christian gospel, the word of Jesus Christ and him crucified to be what has power. It's like this. The Christian gospel has power. It does have power. And even if someone doesn't believe that it does, it still does. And the illustration that I've, I've heard before is this. Um, if, if a man, if I'm walking through a, you know, a dark and scary alley and a man puts a pistol in my back and says, give me all your money or I'm going to shoot. I can say this to him. I can say, I don't believe in pistols. I don't believe that you have one. I don't believe, I don't even believe that they exist. Okay? It doesn't change the reality that when he pulls the trigger and it goes bang, he's getting my money. He will be horribly disappointed when he opens my wallet. But, you know, the, the gun works. The gospel works. Okay? Um, Another, another uh, quotation from the, uh, Drew Conley, the pastor uh, that I sat under most recently before coming here. He said, you know, you, you don't have to defend a lion. You just let him out of his cage. Okay? The gospel works. We don't have to add our fancy rhetoric to it, our fancy ability to argue for it. Use the gospel. Let it run. Let it work. We don't have to defend a lion. Actually, I think that might have even been Spurgeon's quotation originally, but my last pastor used it regularly. If we look, you can just flip one page. This, this, is not a theme, this is not a comment that Paul makes once in time. Look in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. When I came to you, brothers, excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is making a really, really big deal out of the good news of King Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is making Jesus Christ number one. So now, a few points of application. A few points of application. I have three points. Actually, in my notes, I have point one, point four, and point seven. I don't know how that happened. But I have three. Number one, because of Christ, we are unified. So we must live like it. Brothers and sisters, do you understand this? There isn't something that we have to try to unify around. We are unified. We have been brought together by Christ. Our right hand is on the cross. So so now it's, it's that we must live like it. We must recognize it, it's not that I need to, to um, find something with my Christian brothers and sisters to unify around. I, I am unified around the cross. I am unified because of what Christ has done. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. He uses the term brothers. I love, my wife will tell you this, I love the, the title, the... Yeah, whatever you, I guess title. I love the title brother when referring to my Christian brothers. And I actually love even to refer to my Christian sisters as sisters. Okay? That's a little weirder, right? We're okay with calling every now and then anyway, you know, referring to someone as brother so-and-so, but we don't usually say sister so-and-so. Well, I, I do, okay? So don't be weirded out if I call you sister so-and-so. I love these titles. And when I say them, I think every time I use brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, I'm thinking... Yeah, like he really is my brother, and she really is my sister in an eternal sense. You're my brothers and sisters in a way that my physical, human, family brothers and sisters won't be forever. And, and this, this is because we have been brought into family with one another. We are really brothers and sisters. It's not a Christian, you know, it's not a Christian lingo thing. We really are and forever will be brothers and sisters. So we are, we are unified because of what Christ has done. So, number two, we must be people together for the gospel. People who are together for the gospel. Many of you are familiar with um, the, the conference, uh, Together for the Gospel. I've had the privilege to go to a couple of those in the last few years. Um, just for quick, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's a conference that was started by four men, Al Mohler, C.J. Mahaney, Mark Dever, and Ligon Duncan. These are four men who disagree on a lot of things. Two of them are Baptists, one's a Presbyterian, and one is a, a continuationist. Okay, that means that they believe that all the spiritual gifts are still in effect for today. Four men, they, have, they disagree on a lot of things, but you know what? They all are together for one thing, because Christ has made them one. And, and their emphasis has been bringing Christendom together around the truth of the gospel and pure doctrinal clarity. There are many things, brothers and sisters, even good things that we can rally around or disagree with one another with. But Paul doesn't do it, and neither should we. We should be together for the gospel. 
And this together for the gospel, this mindset humbles us as well. Remember I talked about standing at the foot of the cross? When we all stand together at the foot of the cross, someone else has said that the, 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 foot at the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is all level, right? So uh, we stand there, and regardless of our financial success or um, poverty, regardless of our academic success or ignorance, regardless of whether we're a self-made man or you know, whether we uh, um, are you know, the low man on the totem pole, when we stand at the foot of the cross, we all stand as wicked sinners in desperate need of grace. See, I think the people that are happiest in this world are the people that are humblest in this world. Again, this is from Sunday school, so teens, bear with me. When I stand at the foot of the cross and I realize my sin was so bad that God did this to his son to fix me? That's a really humbling thought. My sin, not Hitler's sin, not someone else's sin, my sin was so bad that God put Christ on the cross to bring me back to himself. That is a humbling thought. But in the same moment, it is also the happiest thought I can ever have because God did put Christ on the cross to bring me back to himself. He did show his love to me that amazingly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The, obviously the most famous Bible verse in all of the world. It's a, it's a verse referring to this. So brothers and sisters, when we stand at the foot of the cross, we stand there, we see Christ hanging there for us. We realize we are so bad that we actually do deserve this. And... Christ loved us so much that he did do this. I'm made happy and humble. And when I am happy and humble, it is easy for me to interact with the rest of those for whom Christ has died and brought into his family because we're brothers and sisters. And I'm not, I'm, I am not better than you. I'm not. I might have more money in my pocket and more knowledge in my brain. I am not a better person than you. The foot of the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. So number one, we, because of Christ, we are united, so we must live like it. Number two, we must be people together for the gospel. And number three, our church will, by design, be made up of people with extreme differences. And that's okay. And when I say by design, I mean by God's design. By God's design, our church will be made up of people with extreme differences. People who would never listen to contemporary Christian music. And others, that's the only thing you listen to. And you know what? God, God did that on purpose. It's good. It's not just okay. It's good. It will be, in fact, a sign of health as our church grows for there to be greater dissimilarity and greater unity at the same time more diverse people representing more diverse nations representing more diverse cultures representing more diverse preferences and at the same time growing in unity because of what christ has done birds as again as my former pastor says Birds of a feather flocking together takes no supernatural power. It's when birds of different feathers flock together. 
that something unique's going on. And that's, that's God's desire and design for this church, that birds of very different feathers flock together because of what, that has, been ha- what has happened to them in the gospel of Christ. So when those on the outside look in, they see, wow, really different people, but they're so unified. This is Paul's desire for the Corinthian church. We must work and labor for unity. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore a prisoner for the Lord, uh, excuse me, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Imagine having some of the conversations we have with each other if we literally had them at the foot of the cross. Some of the quarreling that we do with one another. If we, if we literally stood at the foot of the cross while Christ hung there, imagine having these conversations. Again, differences are okay. Disunity is not. And because of Christ and the cross, we can pursue peace with each other. Churches have been, are, and will be marked by disunity. And some of you, have been fed up with disunity. Some of you are Christians and have been for a long time and you've been to lots of different churches and you are fed up with the disunity that you've seen in Christ's church through the years. And you may even be ready to call it quits. Please don't. Please remember that even in the best place on earth, the church, Jesus' bride, even here, are people who on the inside have sin, James 4, and they sin right out of their heart. And it affects each other. It affects the church. It affects the unity of the church. And so the Christian experience at Corinth will be the Christian experience at every church to greater or lesser degrees. And that's why we have these words. That's why we have these words. We're to rally around Christ and His gospel, His cross, We're to fight for unity. That's why Ephesians 4, uh, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with humility and gentleness, with patience. Paul's urging us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Even the best place on earth is marred by sin, and Christ's bride, the church, won't be perfect until eternity. Keep fighting. Help us keep fighting. Keep bringing the gospel to bear on your relationships and on your church, and on your life. Let's unify around the cross of Christ. Psalm 133. You don't need to turn there. I'll close with this. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, referring to a, an oil anointing. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. These are obviously word pictures that are lost to us to some degree, but they're describing beautiful things to an to a Old Testament saint. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Verse one again, behold, 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity.